when he was introduced to give the Peninsula Lectures at the British Library, his introducer, uh, as he did the introduction, reached for the glass of water on the podium and drank it. And I must say, it's an irresistible temptation. You see a glass of water, you drink it. It's under here, Larry. Usually the speaker can't find it in this podium, which makes it easier. Our next lecture in this series is on Monday, the 25th of March, in which David McKittrick, formerly in special collections in the University Library at Cambridge, and lately librarian of Trinity College, Cambridge, and certainly no stranger either to these shores or this platform, will be speaking on 17th century English Bible publishing. Our speaker tonight is Larry Sullivan from the Library of Congress, uh, who has, I am unsurprised to find, a considerable following in New York City. This is the largest crowd we've had in a long time. It's a great pleasure to welcome him here. Uh, to give his meditations on the administration of rare books and special collections, libraries, and other prisons. Thank you, Terry. I'm just disappointed it's only water down there. Uh, 28 years ago, I first came to New York City, and for the first and last time, I saw Lenny Bruce in public. And he came out on the stage, and he looked like he was wondering what he was doing here. And shortly thereafter, of course, he was literally lynched by the police, and you know his story. I kind of feel the same way today. I'm not quite sure what I'm doing here. Uh, I don't really consider myself a rare book librarian. I started out in prison. And not really like Little Dorrit, but my professional career as a librarian began some years ago in the big house. Now, before that, I worked for a while as an historian of medieval France, and the transition wasn't too difficult going from the Middle Ages to prison, especially the one I was working at in Maryland, which was the second oldest uh, prison in continuous use in the United States, and uh, with a cornerstone dating from 1804. Um, prison is really where I learned everything about librarianship. I also found out working in prison that Librarianship, the principles of librarianship are pretty much the same. There's practices of administration, the principles of administration of almost any library, including special collections, are extremely similar and there are parallels there. Now, when you talk about special collections, prison certainly was very special. And I talk from a certain point of view because since that time I've administered independent research libraries, academic libraries, and government libraries, where I am right now. But to start with prison and you know, set a pattern here, I had a staff in prison of about 20 people. And actually it's a larger staff than the one I have now at the Library of Congress. The difference there is that they all had tenure. <laughs> the lightest sentence of my, one of my staff members was 17 years, and uh, the longest term on the staff was six consecutive life sentences. <laughs> now, I figured if I could survive managing that staff, much less the clientele, I could survive managing almost anything. And I did. At least I'm here, and so I've survived so far. Now, I did about everything in prison librarianship. 
I did cataloging for the last first and last time. I did reference for the first and last time. <laughs> I did collection development, not for the last time. And I also did administration. And we did build up a small special collection there in black and prison literature. Now, the book was a very precious commodity in prison. It was an object of some veneration in more ways than one. The book was very important in the culture of the prison because it helped alleviate boredom. And boredom in a prison leads to violence. So if you keep them down, they might not kill each other, which was a very, very real concept in the prison. But the book also had another type of value in the prison. For instance, the latest Donald Goins or Exterminator novel had a going rate of, let's say, a carton of cigarettes in the cell blocks or on the yard. So these collections were real special, perhaps more so than what we would think, normally think of in special collections. Now, in prison, I also had my first experience with organizing Friends of the Library group, which is something all special collections like to have if they don't already have. Uh, my friends group, of course, did not contribute too much money to the, uh, to the collections or to the coffers of the library. However, they performed a very important function. As I said, the book had value. It was a commodity. So my friends group consisted of some of the biggest and meanest convicts who commanded authority in the prison. So they're the ones who could go and get the books back from the cell box. In other words, when you had overdue books, we would send the friends out and go around the blocks. <laughs> Well, you see, in the manner of good bibliomaniacs, these um, prisoners would hoard, and hoard the books in their cells. Then when the time came, they would practice exchange, just like we do with the Library of Congress. We can't sell books, we exchange them for something else. And we did the same thing in prison. Now, extreme violence could result from messing around with someone else's books, and it happened all the time. Now, patterns of life and thought tend to go to extremes in a prison setting. But the notion of the value and preciousness of books were there, just as we find in rare book libraries in the free world. Also, the idea of the use of books was there, just as in free world libraries. A book that was not to be used or read was worthless. The same is true, or should be true, in all of the free world special collections. Now, if we consider the problems of administration, just consider managing a staff and clientele of most hardcore convicts in the state of Maryland. In addition, because the library was actually doing something for prisoners, in other words, we did programs, uh, we would bring speakers in, we made a movie of the prison, we even had the prison open in two nights a week, which was something I've heard of. We also had the custodial staff to contend with, because the primary object of a prison is to keep people in custody. If you did something for a convict, you were suspect, because in the custodial staff's mind, the only good convict is one who's locked up 24 hours a day and doesn't cause any trouble. But even if the situation is extreme, the problems that are administra of administration are similar to other institutional settings. We had problem staff, problem management, and problem clientele. With the problem staff, for instance, um, they included most of the guards in the prison. They said they didn't really like the library. But we had a program of passing out free playboys in the cell blocks. We would get um, the last two months' issues from the supplier in Baltimore, pick them up in a prison van, and then go through the cell blocks. Well, the guards did not like this at all. Why should you give this obscene literature to the convicts to read in the cells? 
Well, the criticism stopped once we started passing them out free to the guards also. <laughs> and if you bring up the Playboy, another a parallel between, let's say, prison and the Library of Congress, one of our most asked for uh, uh, periodicals in L.C. is Playboy. And the Rare Book Division has that. And it was only recently that we got it on microfilm and the reference staff was never so happy with me that they could go read in the microform reading room now rather than the Rare Book Division. And it was used a lot. Obviously, Congress needed to look at the stories, interviews, etc. But it was not out in the general stacks for also for obvious reasons. In problem clientele, for instance, I remember one incident that almost cut my library career in the bud. We had a grant to train 50 convicts in every facet of librarianship. We had them doing Dewey number building, reference work, you name it, they were doing it. Now, during the classes, which were held in the library and we had a lot of outside speakers, the library was closed. So one day, you had a psychologist talking, and he was talking about interpersonal relations and dealing with the problem library client. So I was sitting at the door, and in walks this uh, very, very mean convict um, who resembled a bull. I saw him at the door and told him that he had to come back later when the library was open. And he couldn't quite understand what all the other convicts were doing sitting in the library. I said, well, it's a class. He couldn't quite understand that. So he rushed past me with his library card, we even had library cards in prison, library card in hand, and ran up to the psychologist who was talking about dealing with the problem client. <laughs> well, our psychologist literally dived under the desk. <laughs> so much for expert consultants that we see so much. At any rate, as the official bouncer of the library, I went up and I grabbed him by the shoulders, gingerly, and led him out the library. But while I was doing that, I noticed a, um, a quiet, a silence among these 50 convicts or so who were sitting there. And um, this is not the usual type of thing for these guys. I mean, they didn't sit quietly very often. Also, the guards didn't do anything. It was only later when a few convicts came up to me and congratulated me on being alive. Because here was a guy who I think was sentenced originally to three years, but had already done eight years, five of them in solitary confinement, not even solitary confinement, in the hole where it was completely dark and literally had a hole in the middle of the floor and that was it. And that was because he had a slight case of paranoia and he all thought that the you know, best defense was a good offense, so he always struck first. And, in fact, the next week he was back in the familiar surroundings of the hole because he did maim someone in the yard who he thought was against him. Now, such brute force is the most obvious manifestation of power and is most transparent in the violent atmosphere of the prison. That a library is a place for violence places it in a very precarious situation in the prison. In many of the prison novels and memoirs I've read, beatings, killings, take place in the library frequently. It's quiet, there aren't that many guards. For instance, the murder in Malcolm Brady's novel On the Yard is one good example. The point is that among the power structure of a prison, the library is peripheral at best. And when it causes security problems, its existence becomes even more precarious. 
Therefore, it's really the library administrator's job to plot strategies of power that place the library squarely in the order of things in the institution. This means convincing the hierarchy of the prison, convicts and staff alike, that the library is an integral part of the institution and should obtain the resources it, it deserves and become part of this very same power structure. In this sense, the peripheral character of, this, of the library and the hierarchy makes it similar to the position of the Special Collections Division in the academic or the research library. Now, having touched really on what my main theme is, the peripheral character of the Special Collections, I'll return to it later and move on a little bit. Eventually, I was paroled and got out of prison and became chief librarian at the Maryland Historical Society. Uh, the transition was not that difficult, as it might seem. The characters changed, but the principles of the strategic manipulation of power in the hierarchy remained pretty much the same, only they were not as transparent as in the prison setting. Well, the Maryland Historical Society has a very good collection. It was founded in 1844. It has a long history of collecting Americana in general and Marylandia in particular. I administered a library with about 65,000 imprints, a million and a half manuscripts, hundreds of thousands of prints and photographs, ephemera, and also an oral history division. As in many similar institutions, the collections were good, but few resources existed to support them. In addition, a great competition for these resources existed between the museum and library components, something you see frequently in historical societies. A new administration and board of trustees had taken over right before I was appointed, and they were much more interested in furniture than in research libraries. Now, according to some in this field, the museum function is much more glamorous, and more resources should be committed to this aspect than to the library of the institution. Naturally, I tend to disagree with this, because the library, with its research orientation, most assuredly contributes much more to the long-term value of the institution. Now, once again, it's a question of placing the library, in this case, a special collection, squarely in the proper place in the power hierarchy. Now, one way of doing this, obviously, is to building up, the building up the resources on your own through the procurement of grants and publications on the collection. For instance, we did a guide to the research collections of the Historical Society, and we wrote articles and things like that, and also put on exhibits. In other words, the publicity factor helps make the library more known and the value of the library as against the exhibit function, which is much more publicly oriented. Now, from Maryland, I moved on to the New York Historical Society, which is an institution very similar to the Maryland Historical Society, but about 10 times the size. Now, as most of you know, the New York Historical Society is one of a handful of the great historical societies in the country. Founded in 1804, it built up one of the truly outstanding Americana and New York, New Yorkiana collections. Now, when I got there, the library still had something like 300,000 catalog cards that were handwritten. You know, back in the good, from the good old days when they taught the proper things in library school, like handwriting. We also had only one cataloger. Now, here you have a collection of about 650,000 imprints the library had also had the manuscript division with about two million manuscripts. Had prints and photos with about a couple million plus a million uh, piece collection of ephemera, the Landauer collection. 
And you had one cataloger who basically started out, I believe, as a library clerk and who's never really trained in cataloging. So what are you supposed to do in a situation like that? Well, again, you have a variety of strategies because the Board of Trustees is not about to give you several million dollars to start cataloging your collection. So you go out and you get grants, you became um, full members of the research libraries group, and stemming from that, other grants came to catalog. And when I finally left, I think we had something like 14 catalogers on the staff, give or take a few, I can't remember. Uh, Concerning the New York Historical Society, I really end here. I could spend the evening giving you a case study on how not to manage an institution, but we'll be very discreet and only say how happy I am that this venerable institution is on the rise again. Now, after some years of managing historical special collections, I changed gears somewhat and moved over to the position of chief librarian at Lehman College. Now, Lehman is one of the senior colleges of the City University of New York. Now, the situation here was somewhat different. At the Historical Society, there never really was a question of the values of the library, only the degree of value vis-a-vis the museum or some other special functions. At Lehman, we had a special collections division, primarily devoted to the history of the Bronx and lower Westchester County. As the chief administrator of the library, I not only had to fight for resources for the library in general, but also to justify the resources expended for special collections in times of continuous budget cuts. Now, in a university setting, we all know great expenses involved in keeping up current subscriptions, standing orders, etc. So how do we justify the special collections division, which, as in the prison, appears on the periphery of the general order of things? Now, administrative relations in a place like the City University are similar to other organizations. There is a definite hierarchy. There are various levels of prestige. You have deans, faculty, librarians. And at the City University, librarians have faculty status. The last time I gave a paper in New York, I discussed the problem of faculty status. And my thesis in that talk was that librarians should define themselves in terms of being librarians and not something other, meaning the faculty or the teaching faculty. The response to that talk was such that when I left for Washington the next week, I'm sure that some of my critics thought that they had run me out of town. Now, I still haven't changed my opinion too much on the subject, but the more I think about it, the more I feel that there are many similarities and parallels between special collections and the rest of the library organization, meaning parallels between faculty status and librarians and special collections and the rest of the library. The faculty hold power and status in the university through the mystification of their knowledge base. Now, originally, the university was a community of scholars. So, you know, university toss meant a corporation. The masters in the medieval university controlled the access to their corporation or union through a controlled process that led to the academic degree. Now, through the centuries, of course, this changed as administration ceased to be elected by equals and was formalized. Now, today, the faculty still hold prestige in the university, but not the real power. The culture is similar, as are the degrees of power and prestige in a library. Librarians fought to gain faculty status to get this prestige and power, But as I argued before in that other paper, they were on the wrong track. To be called professor does not win acceptance into the Guild of Scholars. 
In a similar way, many of the special collections librarians, because they have certain specialized knowledge, claim to have more prestige in the library. But they do not necessarily have the power. In fact, I don't think they have the power. There is, of course, a difference here, but I think it's one of degree, not substance. Again, I'll come back to this concept a little later. Now, in 1989, I moved on to the Library of Congress. Now, there is a bureaucracy. <laughs> Two years prior to my move, the uh, new administration set in motion a plan for reorganization. And they put it in the hands of what they call the MAP team. Um, Two months before I took up my job, they pressed the button and the whole library reorganized. Now, my advantage here is that I was not familiar with the old structure, and I came in new. The old Department of Research Services was abolished, and special collections entered into a new department called Collection Services. That meant that the special collections, which means in the Library of Congress, the rare book division, manuscripts, geography and map, motion pictures, prints and photographs and music, as well as two other area studies divisions that are custodial, um, Asian and African and Middle Eastern, joined with the old processing services department. So the new department has, I think, 32, 33 divisions, I lost count, with about 1,500 staff, which really is a larger staff than most universities, much less university libraries. Now, the Library of Congress is a huge institution. It's 5,000 employees. And the Rare Book and Special Collections Division is the smallest of the special collections. We have a staff of 16, but that will be doubled this year because we are hiring 16 new people just to catalog our arrearages. And that total about, they total about half the collection. Not that the library or the Rare Book Division is unimportant in the order of things, far from it. Now, we're relatively new within the institution, and I'll give you just a brief description for some of you who don't know what the Rare Book Division is in the Library of Congress, some of its history and its collections, so you have an idea of what we have here. Um, rare books were always, say, um, say, somewhat cared for in the Library of Congress. In the 19th century, they started culling a few books from the general collections and they would put them in the librarian's office. This is when uh, Ainsworth Rand Spofford was the librarian. Most of this started with the um, Peter Forrest collection, which was purchased in 1867, which is one of the largest collections of Americana in the country at the time, which um, my old institution, the New York Historical Society, could have bought first, but they didn't raise the money, and so the Library of Congress bought it. But besides uh, Americana, it also included a very significant collection of Incunabula and early printing. So a lot of these books made their way into the librarian's office. Um, in 1906, we got this very large Slavic collection from a, a Siberian vodka merchant, and about 80,000 strong, and 4,000 of the rarest came to the rare book division eventually when we got a rare book division. So that was the nucleus of the Slavic division, or Slavic collections in the Library of Congress. When Putnam, on the wall over there, was a librarian, he decided to build up a desiderata list, which he did. And it was in 1926, 
and he called this a list of bibliographic monumenta that the library lacked. And he realized the need to publicize these desiderata, and as he said, collectors who have had the relish of collecting and a sufficient satisfaction of possession may come to consider the permanent disposition of their collections and may turn to the National Library as inevitably as the British collector turns to the British Museum. Now included in these desiderata were many classics of Americana, early printing, and English literature. Now since that time, most of these materials have been added to the collections. In 1927, the division was large enough to have its own quarters, and in that year, where Bookham was opened on one of the decks in the Jefferson Building, and it housed about 25,000 volumes. V. Walter Palmer was the first curator of the rare book room, as it was called, and he went out and started culling the general collections again for more and more books, and he would draw up lists of various things that um, the rare book division needed. By the time you got to um, Frederick Goff, who was chief from 1945, acting chief really from 1941, the division had about 127,000 volumes. Now, while Goff was the acting chief, he asked, or the librarian asked um, Lawrence Roth, who then was the librarian of the John Carter Brown Library, to come in and help give direction to the division's collections. Now, Roth wrote a collecting policy which stated in part that the division would choose books without regard to form because presumptively they are the earliest, the most interesting, the most important to the scholar, or the finest editions, and to secure great books and to buttress them by lesser books. So Roth also built up a list of desiderata, and throughout his life he corresponded back and forth with the rare book division's chiefs about the acquisition of these things. During the same period, the same year that Roth came on as a consultant was the year that Lessing Rosenwald made his great gift to the Library of Congress, which at that time consisted of 400 illustrated books, mainly 15th, 16th century. Uh, they were our books, but they stayed in his gallery in Philadelphia. And by the time he died in 1979, the number hit 2,600. And this was probably the most valuable gift of books that the Library of Congress ever received. Now basically the division collects in all areas that the library collects. And I could go into many, many more of the collections that we have. However, when Terry asked me to um, give this talk originally, um, he talked about administration, not necessarily talking about all these marvelous objects that we have in the Library of Congress. And I like doing that, and I like talking about the collections. Uh, we could spend a few hours discussing these collections. But let me just say that we have something of everything. And greatest strengths in Americana, the largest collection of incunabula in the Western Hemisphere, as we like to say, and about 98 other special collections um, of about, well, 650,000 items in all, covering all formats. And even though we have a manuscript division in the library, we have all the pre-1601 manuscripts. Uh, I think it was Putnam again who decreed that uh, they should come to the rare book division and not to the manuscript division. Now also, when Terry asked me to talk, 
uh, he suggested that I keep a diary of my first year at the library and what I did there. Now, I thought about that and soon realized that my experience at the Library of Congress was not qualitatively different from prison or the independent research libraries or academia. Just the scale is different. So is the degree and the value of the collections. Now, when you administer these types of collections and types of libraries, we find many common concepts. In fact, as I said, I find that the problematic, the concept of faculty status for librarians and power in the university culture is very similar to the place of special collections in the library. Now, let me just discuss briefly a few of these concepts that I find problematic for the administration of special collections, at least from my point of view, and my point of view is that they're problematic within the general library organization and tend to uh, detract the special collections division from being placed in the power structure of the library. And some of these are, we call them the primacy of the collectible book, special book syndrome, the quasi-religious aspect of the book, and then leading from these others, the lack of power of special collections within the organization. Lessing Rosenwald, who I just mentioned, once remarked that the National Library deserves and demands the strongest rare book collection that it can possibly build. A colleague once asked me why. Another colleague, very high in the power structure, asked me, what are rare books and what are they for? In fact, almost any time I give a tour of the collections to someone who is not in the field, I'm asked that question. You know, what are these things for? What's, what makes a book rare? And I'm not going to sit here and tell you what a rare book is. I'm not quite sure I know what a whole lot of nines are, much less a rare book. So there are many possible answers here. Now, years ago, when I was a graduate student in history, one of my advisors mentioned that why should he really care about getting an editio princeps of a book when what he really wanted was a good text. He could care less about the variant editions of the original text. Nor did he care or understand that to get a good text, one had to study the variant editions. Now, I don't know, maybe he was right. I mean, he wanted to get primary resources in or a good text of something he could read and use for his research. What was important to him in special collections was the unique. So he asked, why bother spending money and time in getting these precious, precious items when his need was in another place? But many rare book librarians believe in the primacy of collectible books, the need to get ever more editions of a text, even if they're not necessarily needed for any serious research. I mean, I know there is some need in fields for studying every variant, but is that the greater need, or is it better to gather more and more primary re materials for research? Now, even in the prison, the idea of the book took on a special aura. Not only the paperback ghetto novels, but in the special collections it began to build in black and prison literature. These, as I said, were special commodities, things that were treasured as icons, but also as contextual items for the experience they brought to that special clientele. But were they treasured more as icons or for the context? I think more the latter. And 
I don't think that today most of us view special collections as individual rarities collected because they're rare. At least I don't think most of us do. As I mentioned, even Lawrence Roth back in 1943 thought that individual rarity should indeed be buttressed by items of lesser value to form research collections, which is the true aim of a special collections department. However, many still look at us today as custodians of merely the precious. And I'm afraid to say some of us give off that impression that we are keepers of the special book or the special book syndrome. And I'm talking mainly the impression of others from the outside, not really among ourselves, et cetera. Maybe we know what we're doing. But the idea is to do the people who are actually making many of the decisions for us know what we're doing. I mean, although we have custody of the most valuable items in a library, the impression that they are valuable in a monetary sense rather than in a research sense tends to put us at a disadvantage with the rest of the library. We tend to be looked on as more precious than useful or functionary. Our whole operation tends to take on a quasi-religious quasi element. We are the keepers of the holy of holies. And I was reminded that in Elsie's um, pre-renovated reading room, the overseer of the reading room sat on a pedestal. And although that might have been functional for security reasons, this resembled a throne. And so you're waiting for him to wave the censer and for the pages to come out investments. I mean, I think this is somewhat of a fitting picture or metaphor for rare book collections. So, many special collections in the world, and many of them you know, you also have to prove your worth to use them. You get interviewed by curators. You have to fill out form after form after form and prove that you are worthy to touch these books. Now, this just reinforces the impression of preciosity that we tend to convey. Now, I speak of this from experience, not only as a special collections administrator, but as the general library administrator who has to justify what a special collections division is. Again, when funds are lacking for most other things in the library. Security considerations aside, when we limit our resources to the very special few, we deserve such criticisms. And I think we have to admit that you don't have long lines waiting for the opening of your reading rooms in the morning. Now, not that our exalted image does not have benefits for the library or the institution as a whole. We tend to perform very important ceremonial tasks. When heads of states or other dignitaries visit the Library of Congress, we are the ones called upon to bring out the treasures to impress them. We are also called on to mingle with prospective donors because our collections tend to have the glamour. The outside visitor would rather come and look at our incunables or our illustrated books than go visit the cataloging department. But this prestige can be more apparent than real when we think of the organizational power structure. Once the ceremonies are over, we retreat to our shrines. So are we glamorous appendages to the real work or the basics of the library, or are we something more? Now, as I mentioned before, in all of the administrative positions I've held, my work was very similar, whether they were in special collections or in other types of libraries. 
We organize, we plan, we fight for budgets and other resources that allow the staff to fulfill the mission of the organization. Most of you have been probably to library school, you know the basics of management. During my first nine or ten months at LC, I spent more time on paperwork than man in meetings than almost anything else. I almost spent an entire first year trying to negotiate a book contract through the Joint Committee on Printing and the Government Printing Office. Now what made it worthwhile for me was the ability to work once in a while with the collections themselves. I actually get to see a book once in a while. And I especially enjoy the acquisition of the collections. That's where I find the real fun of this job. But in the political culture of the organization, you are competing again for scant resources with numerous other divisions, even within your own department and the library. So how do you justify large expenditures on what is perceived as a, as a superfluous bauble? Last year, I went to buy a very expensive book. And when you buy expensive books at the Library of Congress, you have to go through a variety of levels. And it was mentioned by one person that, well, even if you can roll over this money, let's say, to the next year, and you lose the book, we can put it into the science periodicals. <laughs> so that's not the point. That's not the point. You know, this is what we want to get. You know, but the person couldn't understand really why should we get something like this that's so expensive when we get so many of these that are expensive. Okay, and this is the type of thing that is perceived by, let's say, the outsiders, even if they're within the organization. So the question is, how do you gain the perception, the substance of power, of being a highly important part of the research world of the institution? Now, this brings me back to the idea of the separateness of the special collections library and its relations to the rest of the library. Again, it's somewhat similar to the relationship of the academic faculties of the library. The special collections, the rare book librarian, brings a unique expertise to the profession that sets them apart, makes her special. Now, in some instances, this elitism engenders resentment on the part of others in the library, just as the faculty librarians resent the teaching faculty. But I do think that some of us cultivate this elitism because we lack the real power in the library. And we lack power because we are looked upon as special, as the icing on the cake, tasty but not essential. But why do we have the image of being not essential? Why have we cultivated this preciousness? I think it's the same as the teaching faculties hold on the keys to the kingdom of knowledge. We supposedly have something that others do not possess, and we do not want to share it. But do we have what is really necessary to claim any hold on this elevated status? I think we do. But only if we develop what are really special collections and not just the rarities that we all love to look at so much. Now, as I mentioned, the Library of Congress began its rare book division by culling the high spots of the collection. The 1926 Desiderata list was replete with individual items that the library should have as a national library. You know, the Bay Psalm book, the Gutenberg Bible, the Columbus Letter, Shakespeare, etc., etc. It was only later that we systematically developed special collections that were true research collections. Now, it is in these collections, and I think of one of my favorites, which is a 10,000-piece uh, collection on American extremism, which includes bumper stickers and pamphlets and uh, brochures and what have you on the religious right and also the 
uh, radical left in the 40s and 50s. Uh, you put that with our collection of House of Un-American Activity Committee uh, pamphlets, plus our anarchism collection, and there you have about 30,000 pieces that form a very unique research library in itself on radicalism in the United States. It could be found nowhere else. Now, it's nice to have all the high spots. I love them. But without these unique research collections, we tend to become museums. And that's why I say I'm not really a rare book librarian, but I consider myself a special collections librarian. It's really in the context of these collections that lies our true value. And these collections that can be found nowhere else lay the foundation for any true power within the institution. And by power, I mean the ability to gain the resources to build the special collections. The recognition that what we collect is not peripheral, but essential to the research world is what places us in the mainstream of the world of scholarship. We have to anticipate research trends and collect accordingly. That's why we're not expected to be just curators of collections, but also specialists in a variety of subject matters. And there are some divisions that have curators, but our people are called specialists because they are expected to really be on the cutting edge of scholarship, as well as collecting the books. They have to know what is, should be collected in the future for the scholarly world. If we can't anticipate what's going on, we become mere receptacles of what has gone on in the past and then tend to become museums. Now, maybe what I'm stating is obvious to you, but in my experience, I've seen the syndrome too often, the syndrome of the primacy of the collectible book rather than the primacy of the unique research collection. And I think that is how we are perceived in many cases, and that is the problematic. Now, if I had the choice, I would much rather take in my collection radical pamphlets that exist nowhere else than another copy of the Gutenberg Bible or a similar priceless treasure. Not that I'd refuse it as a gift. I always take it. In fact, I was asked, uh, not, after, not long after I got to Library of Congress, why we didn't buy George Washington's copy of The Federalist when it was auctioned off, I believe it was at Sotheby's. I think the answer is very easy. I think it went for 1.4 million, and the bidder would have gone up to 2 million. So why spend $2 million for a signature when I can get much more for the money? It was George Washington's copy, and I think the annotations were in the hand of Bushrod Washington. Well, we have Alexander Hamilton's copy, which his widow gave to Thomas Jefferson, and Thomas Jefferson annotated it. So why get another one? Well, we have lots of copies of the Federalists, but the Jefferson copy is a special one. Now, my comment to the person who asked me this was that if the famous columnist who suggested our purchasing it thought it was so important, he should have bought it and given it to us. And I never heard another word about it, especially when they heard the $2 million price. The point, however, is that special collections in a national library, as well as in other kinds of research libraries, should emphasize their centrality rather than their marginality. And I think that is the first and most important part of the administrator's job, to gain this acceptance of centrality. The strategies of power can be different according to the institution. The Library of Congress is a very unique institution. It's the largest library in the world with an overwhelming variety of functions. 
But special collections should not and are not placed on the margins just because they are special. As I mentioned before, the Rare Book and Special Collections Division is the smallest of the special collections. But the holdings tend to be so unique as research resources that I think we are able to take our proper place in an institution that stresses research. And I think we are able to do that because we have a history and policy to collect collections that add to the research base and to produce scholarship that advances knowledge. Now, once a special collections division acquires this image, and I think it's the image and the perception more than anything else because I think the substance is there for most special collections, the job becomes easier. We lose the image of preciousness and can then function in the power hierarchy and provide the resources necessary for the division to function well and to continue to develop outstanding research collections. Thank you. I hope you will all join our speaker for a glass of wine in room 502.